We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast, and we love bringing you independent and interesting science content with experts from Tasmania or in Tasmania. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Johnson, and on the line we have our expert guest, Dr. Kimberly Norris, who's a local clinical psychologist. So, Kate, you're new to the team. This is your first episode that you're hosting with us, so could you please tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Yes, of course. It's really great to be here. So I'm Kate and I'm based at the University of Tasmania in Sandy Bay. I'm a PhD student and I'm um, studying plant physiology and how plants respond to drought. That's awesome. And we're very lucky to have you on the team as well, Kate. So can you please give us a little bit more information on our expert guest and the topic we'll be covering this week? Yes. So today we have Kimberly Norris joining us. She's a clinical psychologist and a lecturer at the University of Tasmania. Some of her research has focused on investigating how people cope with working in remote and isolated locations, such as Antarctica and outer space. And today we're going to be talking about mental health. If you or someone you know is struggling, we encourage you to seek help. You can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 and visit the Beyond Blue and Headspace websites for helpful resources. It's really great to have you on the show, Kim. I'm very interested, as I'm sure we all are, to hear from you about your research and your advice about maintaining good mental health while social distancing. But first I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what you do as a clinical psychologist and what your specific areas of interest are. So as a clinical psychologist, a big part of my job is to assess, diagnose and treat complex mental health disorders. And the other big part of my job is doing research that's related to how those disorders impact people and how we can develop new ways of supporting people and new treatments so that their quality of life is as good as it can be. And the way I've applied that clinical psychology knowledge in particular is when working with people who live, work and sometimes even choose to visit extreme and unusual environments. So what do you mean by an extreme and unusual environment? And does that mean when, like specifically when they've chosen to live there or could it be, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of um, uh, refugee camps or prison or else then we also have, you know, the probably more glamorous examples of Antarctica or, you know, in the desert doing some really remote research. So do you focus specifically on when people have self-selected? So I actually focus on both in situations where people have self-selected. So they've put up their hand, they've done the training and they've gone to these environments, you know, of their own choice. So these are absolutely, as you say, generally speaking, for want of a better term, the more glamorous situations. But also, of course, those situations where people haven't had that degree of choice, that the situation has been largely thrust upon them. And some of the examples you just raised around refugee camps, pandemics, following natural disaster, are all examples where people are in an extreme and unusual environment. It's very, very different to really what we need to survive and thrive. And yet it's happened. 
and they need to try and navigate their way through as best they can. So my research and my work covers both of those aspects. That's really interesting, Kim. Thank you. So why did you decide to research isolated spaces? One of the original reasons that I chose to really focus on these isolated and remote regions was the fact that even though from the outside looking in, they seem really, really challenging, you know, just to survive, let alone thrive. Not only do we see people, you know, putting up their hand and saying, I'd like to be there, or going back over and over in those situations where they have choice, but even in those situations where they don't have choice, there was definitely some suggestion that people actually came out of those situations having grown, having been developed some skills that helped them do better overall. So essentially, I guess my question was, what is the secret? What is it that allows you to survive in these environments and then take that experience to even further enhance your life beyond that? And what happens, Kim, when you are when you are isolated? Does this depend on how long you're isolated for? So it's a really interesting question about whether it depends how long you're isolated for because it seems like there's almost a magic number. If you're there for, you know, under a month, Generally speaking, the impacts aren't as extreme and aren't as long-lasting. But once you go beyond that sort of four to six-week period, it doesn't seem to matter how long you're there. The impacts are very similar. The only thing that seems to change is how long it takes for you to recover. And the types of uh, symptoms or the types of uh, observations we make when people are in those environments is that their thinking, their feelings and emotions and their behaviours all change. One of the biggest changes we notice is around mood. So generally speaking, it's a bit of a roller coaster. It goes up and down and up and down. But the longer you're there, the highs aren't as high and the lows become much lower and longer. And that's why we have a bit of a pattern where early on, people are excited and generally feeling quite good. After a while, it kind of comes down a little bit and things are okay. But then about three quarters of the way through, they hit a real low patch. And it's this sense of, I've been here so long now, the end's still really not in sight. And they hit a bit of a low trough, for want of a better word. So a low point. And we call that the third quarter phenomenon. Then they start to come back up. But this time the excitement is also paired with a little bit of worry, a little bit of apprehension about how do I go back to, in inverted commas, normal life now. That's really interesting, Kim. So I have a couple of follow-up questions. One, do we see differences on like a physiological level? Like if we were going to look at brain scans of people who had been exposed to isolation, would they be different to those who from people who hadn't been exposed to isolation? That is such an interesting question and it's actually one of the questions that we don't feel we've really got an answer for yet because the people we have had an opportunity to measure things like neurochemical levels, do brain scans and look at neuronal structures, uh, take bloods and look at cortisol levels, all of those things have really only been in those self-selected groups um, which is a different experience people who've had it thrust upon them but also it's often complicated by things like for example when you're in space 
there are a number of other factors like radiation exposure and the like, which also affect the brain. So what we do hypothesize is that there are at least temporary changes in the way neuronal structures work and in the formation of new neural networks, but that they can be changed and remediated after people are back in a more normal environment. Okay, and I suppose that that would probably obviously be conditional on the fact that they do go back to a normal environment and probably how long they've been exposed. But um, I was really interested in what you were saying about, was it the third quarter and that you know, we reach this point where once you're past that, the longer you're there, then the longer it takes to like revert to normal. But also you start to become really anxious about returning to normality. So I wonder, um, do you think that, and you said it's around four to six weeks. So do you think that with the pandemic and the current isolation that we're experiencing, is that why governments are starting to, you know, give people a sign of hope that there is a reintegration or a relaxation of the restrictions plan? Um, and, you know, how important is a, a deadline where you can see a return to normality for some people to cope with isolation? It's actually a bit of a double-edged sword because... We do need that sense of hope that comes with an end point. So being able to provide that end point or at least the idea that there can be some greater freedom can be psychologically very, very powerful um, and very, very motivating to just keep going. The tricky part is that in situations where for lots of different reasons, suddenly that end date changes. So for example... If we look around Australia at the moment and the way the pandemic um, restrictions are being relaxed or adapted, and it varies state by state, and as a result, some people in states where there are still quite strict restrictions actually feel them even more commonly, feel they're being impacted even more because they can see just in that space over there, the situation is very different. The other thing we find, for example, in Antarctica is particularly when people are going at the end or beginning of the season is a lot of sea ice and so their ability to get on and off the ship is purely weather dependent and if they're going on one of the planes it all depends on the ice runway being up to standard, favorable temperature and wind conditions so suddenly this idea of an end date being really powerful motivator can actually be a source of further distress if it doesn't go according to plan. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, particularly, like I find the whole end date quite interesting. But I myself have even found I'm feeling like anxious about that, and I'm like, oh, well, what if people like now that we've announced that there's a plan for a return or relaxing restrictions? What if people think that 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 means everything's fine and we're all going to start going back to more normal than what's being recommended in the guidelines? And it kind of creates this whole sense of new anxiety. And well, is this an opportunity to? to create a new normal or, you know, should we go back to the way things were before? And I wonder how much of that is related to like how long people have been isolated and working from home and are we likely to see differences in those who have had to maintain some sort of normality of going to work, you know, those essential workers compared to those people who probably have the luxury to still have some normality of working from home. But then also between those who weren't able to maintain work and found themselves um, furloughed or you know laid off because of a situation or circumstances outside their hands. Absolutely. And that's why we're going to see actually a whole range of different reactions as we move back into a new normal. And I think you put it really nicely. 
we won't be going back to the way things were. We never can because the psychology at the societal level has changed too much. We have this ingrained and based in reality fear. And so as you were saying too, suddenly initially it was, oh gosh, I miss being around people. And now for some of us at least, there's a concern that actually being around other people might not be safe. And that anxiety that it brings with it means that although we might have, you know, say four or five weeks ago, have jumped at the chance to get out and spend time with people, what you'll probably find now is that for many of us, we actually take a much slower approach. So even if we are, you know, given the ability to go out more to meet a larger group, we may choose to take that even more slowly than the government permits, simply because we're actually doing something called systematic desensitisation. We're slowly edging back in piece by piece at a rate that we feel comfortable with so that we don't become overwhelmed. The other thing too that you were saying about uh, essential workers is a really important one because something that is a really, really interesting phenomenon is this thing called letdown phenomenon. So for those individuals who have been able to maintain their work during the pandemic in standard form, so they've physically been going into their work environment, and particularly those who are in the health workforce, um, who for, although they're very, very overstretched and overrun and no doubt exhausted, part of them, this is actually the reason they do the job they do. This has provided them an opportunity to really work at the peak of their ability. And so when things settle and when things calm, there'll be, yes, relief for them. But there'll also be this thing called letdown phenomenon, where suddenly norm, the normal world doesn't seem as meaningful or even fulfilling. So it's almost like a mini grief reaction that we could expect to see in some of those essential workers. That's absolutely fascinating. I hadn't really considered that, but that, you know, particularly for frontline health workers, but, you know, even um, people who are carers or porters, you know, so much of their identity must be wrapped up at the moment in, I am so, I'm essential and this is a really big cause and I'm doing really essential work because they are. But after that fact, like, how do you reconcile that change in identity and returning to -to day-to-day duties that aren't this massive feat that we have to overcome? I think that's a really interesting point. That's all we've got time for in our first segment, but stay with us for more information from our expert guest as we unpack a little bit further Dr. Kimberly Norris's work on how people cope in isolation, which is so relevant for now. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about what happens when humans are isolated and about maintaining good mental health when social distancing. My name is Kate Johnson and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Dr Kimberly Norris from the University of Tasmania. So Kim, you have studied how people cope with and respond to working and living in isolation with very little human contact. How do you collect data on this? Uh, historically it's been quite challenging, I will be honest. One of the really beneficial things we've found is that we have amazing research collaborations with organisations who routinely send their employees to these environments. For example, the Australian Antarctic Division, uh, NASA and other private organisations who require their employees to go into these environments. And in those situations, because people understand the realities of the challenge, 
they're actually are very, very giving of their time because not only do they see the benefit to themselves so they could learn ways that they could experience life in a better way, they could adjust between the different environments more readily, but also it's quite fundamental to being able to continue this type of work. And as we move towards colonisation of space and space tourism, then we really vitally need this information. So it's actually a very altruistic gesture by these participants um, and facilitated by industry and organisation who also recognise how vital it is. So I wonder if you could talk through some of the tests and ways that you look at that in a bit more detail. Absolutely. So from a psychological perspective, initially this all came about by asking people, so an interview-based approach. Tell me, what was it like? How did it go? What would you change? What would you do the same? Then around the 1950s, psychological and medical research more generally in Antarctica really exploded in terms of its relevance and in terms of the amount of time and money dedicated towards it. But then what we started to see is something where essentially it was self as participants. So people like scientists, like medical doctors, would go down to Antarctica and they do these massive traverses. And over the course of this traverse, they make notes about their mental health, they take blood samples, they measure their heart rate, they measure all these biological and psychological indices and came up with this massive data set that they brought back. And that was the first time we really had a good understanding of how to start narrowing our attention. Since then, we actually have used a combination of methods, much like you were detailing a moment ago. So we have what we call the validated self-report measures. So these are standardised measures that people will respond to and will get scores. And really interestingly, around that, what we found is that the normative data, so the data that we have from you know other places around the world, you can't actually use that as a baseline when you're working with people in extreme and unusual environments because fundamentally they are so different that you actually have to develop your own set of norms and understand that you're going to have, compared to a normal population, quite huge results on some measures. So people in extreme and unusual environments who choose to be there tend to be higher in risk-taking tend to be higher in impulsivity, tend to be highly, highly intelligent, but also tend to have an interesting combination of other personality and interpersonal factors. At the same time, for example, in the Australian Antarctic program, each month the station doctor does a checkup with everybody to see how they're going in general, but at the same time they take biological measures, psychological measures, And we have this huge data set then, not just at a single point of time, but within person variables. So the same person over the whole time they're there, as well as between person variables, so all the different people that are there, but then even between cohort variables. So do we see differences year to year and station to station? The last type of measure that's probably quite prolific. Obviously, there are other things we do, but these are the big three. And the final is cognitive performance. So we will give them, for example, computer-based tasks and we'll measure their reaction time. We'll measure their processing speed. We'll measure their working memory. And that's how we know 
that the longer you've been in isolation, then your cognition, so your thinking, your memory, your attention, your concentration, actually declines compared to when you first went in. What would you say, Kim, are some of the key strategies from your research that you think people across the world can adopt to maintain good mental health at this time? So one of the very first things that we found, and it's an interesting one again, is that it's important you don't just you know, don't wait for things to get back to normal, but instead you focus on small senses of achievement day to day or week to week. But when we talk about achievement, it's not about using your same set of expectations that you would in a normal environment because there's so many reasons. Remember, your cognitions decline. You don't have access to the same types of resources. You shouldn't be measuring yourself about what you used to do, but instead, what is within your control. Related to that, we have found that if people take up hobbies or start doing things they've wanted to do for quite a long time but never had the time, they actually do much better. And that's linked to this idea of meaning-making and sense of purpose. When people feel that their activities are meaningful, that they have achieved something that's personally relevant, maybe professionally relevant, then they are much more likely to demonstrate resilient outcomes compared to people who essentially feel like they're treading water just waiting for everything to start up again. Those people are likely to have less resilient outcomes. So Kim, that's really interesting about how people respond to social isolation quite differently. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what some of the possible benefits of social distancing and isolation might be. Absolutely. I must admit, I'm so pleased to have this question because, you know, as human beings, we're wired to protect ourselves from danger. So often when we think about these challenges, we think about what can go wrong. But by deliberately focusing on what can go right, it doesn't necessarily mean we can make it happen, but we can create the mental space to see it if it does. So some of the positives that we've found quite consistently is that without the time pressures that often come with a modern busy world, people have that ability to start reflecting on their personal values. And so they become much more aware of what is important to them as a person and that can then guide their behaviour. So particularly, you know, when we talk to people uh, post-natural disaster, when we talk to people after they come back from space, when they come back from Antarctica, a really strong theme is around recognition of the importance of both valuing but also protecting the environment. And so when people come back, you see a shift in behaviour. So they start to think more about their purchases. They start to think more about what they can do to act consistently with their value around the environment. So they might, you know, look to have greater green space around them or to use, for example, if we look at an example like Chris Hadfield, who is a Canadian astronaut who has been to space multiple times, he comes back. And he gives motivational talks and speaks to people about how his life has changed and uses that to encourage change in them. The other things we see quite consistently actually suggest that there are some differences between the way males and females react to isolation. And what we find is that, and again, these are very broad stereotypes, but generally speaking, People who identify as male 
are quite independent. They're quite strong in their beliefs to cope with most things and they tend to be quite self-sufficient in that way. They keep their challenges to themselves and get on with it. But being in isolation where your survival can quite literally depend on the people around you, then you learn to rely on social support more and to expand your social network, which has many positive mental health benefits. So generally speaking, males who've been in isolation will come back with much stronger social networks and a better ability to reach out to others for help when they need it. In contrast, what we see from people who identify as female is that because, again, stereotypically, they are already quite good at using social support resources to keep themselves well and to cope, they instead become much more confident in their own abilities and their own skills. So when they come back out of isolation, they are much more likely to pursue positive risk-taking. So they might change careers or they might go for a promotion or they might just feel more able to promote their opinion in ways that they might have not done before their experience. Thank you, Kim. That's really interesting to hear. And I actually have some friends and colleagues who are really enjoying the lifestyle of self-isolation and are probably feeling some of those benefits that you're talking about with the slow pace of life, spending time with fewer people. And I was wondering if you have any advice for people who are actually quite settled in this social isolation and might be a bit apprehensive about the transition back to everyday life? Absolutely. And that, I think, goes back to that idea about values. What is it that we enjoy about this isolation? What has it allowed us to do or what has it added to our life? And how can we protect that? nurture that as we go forward and some of it might be for example making sure that we routinely book in or make time for ourselves that nobody should ever feel pressured or obligated to go straight back into things full bore. it's okay to take your time and it's okay to voice I need time so it is about figuring out what is it I've liked about isolation and how can I protect and nurture it? And at the same time, understanding that it's okay to take your time getting back out into the world. I think that's an excellent point for us to finish the show on, that it, you know we are all going to be returning to some sort of new norm that is going to have to be established. So thank you very much to my co-host, Kate Johnson, our expert guest, Dr. Kimberly Norris. I'm Neve Chapman, and thank you for listening to That's What I Call Science. If you or someone you know is struggling, there are a number of resources we encourage you to access, including Lifeline on 13 11 14, or visit Beyond Blue and Headspace websites for help. Thanks for listening. And as always, you can get in touch with us on social media, just searching That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 